Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hi. You know that movie you always wanted to see, but you didn't for whatever reason? Well, I call those black hole films. Everyone has them, and this podcast aims to do something about that. I'm Jeremy Lalonde, and every episode I'll be joined by one or more guests to watch a film that at least someone in that group hasn't seen. We'll talk about our expectations of it before it, and then our thoughts after it. This is episode 67, and I'm joined by Justin McConnell, who is, I mean, he's a filmmaker, but he's so much more. The guy does a little bit of everything. Uh, Films you might know that he has done, he has a film that's touring the festival circuit right now called Life Changer. A couple years ago, he had a movie called Broken Mile. He also was a producer on Skull World. And we sit down and watch a film together. Uh, So we're sitting down to watch The Rocketeer. I'm Jeremy. I have not seen the movie. I'm Justin McConnell. I also have not seen the movie, surprisingly. Uh, Yeah, first time. And we're roughly the same age. I'm 36. I'll be 37 in October. We're exactly the same age. Okay, yeah. Uh, so this, so we had the exact same childhood, I assume, where, <laughs> I assume, well, kind well, of, sort of, yeah. no, but in terms of what was coming out. Yes. Well, what was hitting the movie places, but how big was the town you lived in when you grew up? It was not, it, it did not have a movie theater. Okay. So. We had a single screen movie theater. So it was one movie a week and sometimes it would get hold, held over th- for three weeks to a month. So lots of stuff would get missed. Where are you from? Halliburton, which okay. is, uh, about two and a half hours north of Toronto. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Very, very small. There were... Three theaters within a 45-minute drive. Uh, but at, it, I was 10 years old in 1991 when this came out, right? Yeah. And by then, I was already well on my way to, be, to being a monster kid. So it was like uh, I'd already seen The Lost Boys, and I was already sort of like, eh, I don't know about The Rocketeer. That doesn't look cool to me. Um, maybe I, something like that? I don't know. I think that's where I was at, too, because I lived in a small town, did not have a movie theater. We were mm-hmm. Our closest um, city was Hamilton, ah. which is about similar. It was like a half-hour drive away. So I was only going to stuff at that point if my whole family wanted to see it because mm-hmm. we'd see movies together. Uh, yeah. But we did have a really great video store in my town. Yeah, so did we. But uh, you'd have to actually actively go, well, I want to rent that. Yeah, And what exactly. all, you know, when it's that or Aliens, what are you going to pick? And that Yeah, was, and for some reason this, I think I was just at that age. Like, when did this come out? 1991 in theaters, which, but it's a Disney movie, which means it probably would have been 1992 or maybe even 1993 by the time it hit home video. Yeah, so we would have been, been like 12. Uh, 10. 10 or, I, 81 for me. 10 right? when it came out, but by the time it oh, came on video. about 12. And, yeah. and by 12, my dad was showing me like Dario Argento movies and shit. So I was it, on a, I was on a different track. But now I look back and go, man, I wish I had to watch that. Yeah, same. Like, I remember the ads. I remember like the ads going yeah. out in front of the VHS as I was watching and other things. Yeah. And just going, oh, I should just see like, that at yeah. some point. Just but never just, happened. It never happened. I probably played The Wonderful World of Disney or like broadcast at some point, and I might have caught like minutes of it or something here and there, but I, I, I certainly haven't watched the whole thing from front to back. I feel like that's how I might... I, I feel like I've seen a scene or two from this, yeah, and I think that's how I saw it was like on The Wonderful World of Disney on the yeah. Sunday night movie nights they had, right? Mm-hmm. But the funny thing is like I I actually like Joe Johnson, but I liked, yeah. I liked his movies more than I knew who he was so much. Like, he made Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, he made, did Jurassic Park 3, he did Jumanji, October Sky, which I actually didn't see, but the first uh, the first Captain America movie was him. Yep. Um, and there's this weird, like, five degrees of separation thing where uh, one of the most recent movies he directed was called Not Safe for Work, and my consulting producer on Life Changer is Adam Mason, who co-wrote Not Safe for Work that Joe Johnson directed. Small world. So it's like... I guess I've been following his career quietly throughout my yeah. life. And well, he's yeah. one of those guys that people don't know of, really. Well, he's not. He's not one of the the, the heavy hitters 
that became a household name. But he's still like a, a protege of Spielberg, and he like he can take a property that already exists, like the Marvel stuff and like the Jurassic Park, and do a really. I mean, people might say it's a workmanlike job, but it's yeah. still a very solid like. And this is the movie people love him for the most, right? This is the one he put his stamp on the most. Yeah, and I think it's, but I think he's also one of those guys that you you get a film and it's like, oh, Joe Johnson. Yeah, this will be good. This will yeah. be reliable. Uh, he did the Wolfman as well, which uh, I liked, and everyone else didn't. But, nice. Uh, the one with Benicio del Toro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I was just blown away by today. I just picked up, I just upgraded a bunch of my VHS to DVD, yeah. and I was putting them on the shelf, and I didn't realize. The same guy that directed Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure directed Mr. Holland's Opus. Yes. And that blew my mind for a but second. But again, we, we moved into this kind of auteur sort of thing. I mean, it was like this in the 80s and 90s, too. People knew certain directors. But now when something comes out, you know everything about the production. You know about the director's last five films. Yeah. Back then, you focused more on the films. Yeah, and, exactly. And certain directors like the John Carpenters and stuff, they'd stand out. But maybe not the guy who did Bill and Ted. Yeah. You just really like Bill and Ted. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's just it. Yeah. yeah, they were. He was not the star of the movie. The movie was. Mm-hmm. I, I wish I hadn't looked at the cast at the back. Yeah. I, Holy shit! This cast is awesome. Yeah. There's uh, I, I, Timothy Dalton's in it. Uh, Billy Campbell, who I actually watched for years on the 4400 and the Killing, and um, Timothy uh, Dalton. Yeah, Jennifer Connelly's in it. It's uh, a pretty fucking good cast. It is stacked. Yep. All right. So should we just dive into it? I guess so. Let's yeah. do it. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. All right, we just finished. Uh, so I didn't see it when I was a kid, obviously, but it still brought me back to my childhood, which is odd. I, I think it's just the style of the film and just how non-cynical it is and how it's not afraid to be campy. And it, even just the way it opens, right? You get the title treatment, and then almost like curtains parting in a, in a movie. Literally, they, 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 literally, they part the the hangar doors, which parts the title, and then you're into the scene. It's such a classy fucking movie. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm assuming I can swear. You can swear, fine. swear, swear the fuck away. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's very much uh, a family film. It's it's so Disney of that era. It is, but it's also quite violent for a family film. You don't see like bullets hit, but a lot of people die in that movie. They shoot, <laughs> they shoot the hell out of Alan Arkin's house. Yes, they do. But they also mow down a ton of Nazis. They throw people out of blimps. There's Hindenburg imagery. Uh, you know, there's so much collateral damage whenever he flies through. Like, the, there's the part where they're in that, that massive... The Copa? Yeah, the Copa. I think it's the Copa Cabana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's just flying around smashing people into, like... I mean... There's a lot of collateral damage. lighting stuff on fire. Yeah, yeah, lighting stuff on fire and things like that. It, but it, it was a really fun movie. It's um, it's probably something I'd watch again, even though I've waited 27 years from when it was released. It's a really good movie. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's fun. It's got a great cast. Um, oh, the cast is insane. It's just full of like every bit part in this movie yeah. is just a classic character actor. It's either a that guy or a that girl. Like it's yeah. like we I was even there's there's like a bit part of of somebody at the Copa Club just singing a song and it's the actress who plays Jan in the office. Yeah. And, and like Joe Polito and uh, I saw Clint Howard in there for like three seconds. Yeah. And is it uh, Joe or John Polito? Uh John Polito, sorry. Yeah, John Polito. Okay. Yeah. Um Yeah Clint Howard has his moment. Yeah William Sanderson uh like Mars, uh, what's her name? Margot um, Martindale. Yeah, yeah. Who, who's in it? Um, and then obviously Timothy Dalton's playing an excellent villain. Terry O'Quinn is playing uh, Howard Hughes. Yeah, the whole yeah. it's just that it's, it's nonstop. Yep, it's it's everywhere you turn. There's a there's a character actor 
who continued on in film after that. And the only one who kept working, but you don't, just don't notice him as much anymore, is the, is the lead to some degree. Like, he's he's in a lot of stuff, but and he gets leads in certain television series and things like that. Yeah, well, what's, I mean, I'm not super familiar with Bill Campbell. Billy Campbell, well, Billy. this was the biggest film he did. Right? No, I know that, but yeah. so what are some of the stuff that I would recognize him from? The 4400, he was one of the leads, okay. uh, uh, if you ever saw that series. Uh, the Killing, he was one of the leads. Yeah. Um, there was a series, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it. I also watched this show. Uh, oh, Helix. He was a lead in the first season. Okay, I never um, saw Helix, yeah. Yeah, I'm, we probably have friends who, well, I, I have friends who worked on it. Um, he does a lot of TV stuff. He does a lot of smaller roles in, in, in films, a lot of supporting actor stuff. But after this, he just didn't take off, which you'd expect. But I don't think The Rocketeer was a huge hit for Disney yet. No, and they're, and they're clearly queuing it up for a sequel. Yeah, there's at something. The end. Like, yeah, you know? they've got the plans, and, and they're, you know, you could build a new, a new jetpack of some kind. Yeah, Alan Argan's talking about modifying yep. it, and yeah, clearly he's some kind of. Well, the whole thing takes place. Except for the the epilogue at the end, yeah. Uh, over the course of two days, yeah. It's it's very much it's almost <laughs> it's almost a bad night on the town movie, except it's spread out over over two days a two day period. Yeah, which I was kind of disappointed by at first, except for the third act, so great, oh, yeah. so so big that it was just like, oh, really? It's like it just feels like he need. I wanted more adventures. You mean he's, he gets the jetpack and he's he's out doing saving people or whatever it is something yeah but in a way he, there's so many people looking for the jetpack it's almost like it's a it wouldn't cha- make it's sense. a chase movie right it starts with a chase almost. yeah you're he's right he's testing you're that right. plane and it's straight off the bat it's like somebody's got the jetpack there's people the FBI are after the jetpack they stow it and from that point onward he's hunted to some extent yeah the, there's there's a ton of logic problems in this movie for <laughs> sure. me. The, the, fir- the first one that really bothered me was after they shoot up Alan Arkin's house yeah. and they go into hiding, they make some kind of comment how, well, the FBI is going to get after us. we got to keep on hiding. It's like, they would know who house it is. Yep. They'd be able to look that up pretty quick. And probably find that restaurant. Because he's the co-owner, right? With Margaret Mar- Mar- Martindale? It- was he the co-owner or wasn't it? Something the, like the, Mar- the, the other guy? Either way, yeah. they, they frequent this place. Yeah, they're there they're all the either, time. They're either there or at the hangar. Which, by the way, I, I love the way they introduced the restaurant. Because there's a little bulldog who's got a little uh, a little yeah. bone in his mouth. And he walks by the camera and then reveals a shot of the restaurant, which is shaped like a big bulldog. It's it's There's all these little tiny that touches set was throughout great. this movie. Yeah. Well, just that attic. The yeah. attic where they, they hung out. Mm-hmm. And then the, the windows with the dog's eyes. Yeah, exactly. There's little details like that were just beautiful. Oh, there's even... There's just at the end, the way... I mean, obviously, it's been 27 years, so spoilers. If you're re- listening to this without seeing The Rocketeer... Spoilers are Spoilers expected. are... But the way Timothy Dalton dies falling into the Hollywood land sign and blowing away the land, so it just yeah. leaves Hollywood. I, I, I love that stuff. I wonder if there's a super cut... Of, of movies that destroy the land part of the sign because that's not the first time I've seen that happen. Where, what other films have you seen that? I happen? can't remember off the top of my head. I'm sure there's spoof movies where that happens. Yeah, I've seen it a few times. I feel like a Mel Brooks movie did it. That's possible. It's into, you know I'm actually <laughs> that's another black hole for me. I've seen a number of Mel Brooks movies and I just bought his box set. I haven't seen the rest. Oh, so I'll, get to, I'll get to that. Um, <laughs> the production design in this movie is fantastic. Oh, it's phenomenal. You, you were talking about the Timothy Dalton's house. Is, yeah, uh, so it's I, I I was watching it and went that looks really familiar. That looks like Deckard's place in Blade Runner, and it isn't. But what it is is there's a place called Ennis House in L.A. And I was looking it up while I was watching the movie. 
that was Deckard's house in Blade Runner, but also the house from the remake of House on Haunted Hill. It was Spike Drusilla and uh, Angel's Place in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the series. It was also and, Karate Kid, right? There was, yeah, Karate Kid 3. There's a laundry list. But also, uh, for this film, they recreated the pillars from that house for Timothy Dalton's place, essentially. So yeah. that iconic, whatever that pillar shape is, that weird relief was created exactly to be Timothy Dalton's house from Ennis House. I'm not sure why they didn't just shoot an Ennis House, but it's it's interesting. It just seemed, but also this movie just feels like they just had so much money to spend. Oh, yeah. There's a there's a throwaway there's a throwaway uh, establishing shot of the um, is it the Egyptian no the Chinese, the Chinese, Chinese as he theater, flies yeah. by that looks like it was recreated for 1938. I'm sure it's plates and like and you know just to get the whole shot together, but for for something that's on screen for one second, however they did it, it wasn't cheap. No, not at all. Yeah, not at all. That shot costs more than most indie films. Probably costs more than the one I just made. Yeah. (laughs) That being said, um, but yeah, there's so many just charming little touches in this movie that that I, I, I it's not without its flaws. But it's the, they're the type of flaws where you can tell the people who are making it when, you know what? This, we don't care. This is a logic problem, but it doesn't matter because we're, we're, we're doing uh, magical realism. We're doing high fan, like yep. a ground level tale. of fantasy. Yeah, it's a fairy tale. Totally. It's, it's the, the chosen one finds the device that allows him to raise above his lot in life and get the girl and all that sort of thing. Yeah. And uh, defeat the Nazis. And defeat the Nazis. I love the newsreel that the, the with the uh, the cartoon, yeah, the jetpack Nazi cartoon. It's pretty friggin' awesome. I also think it's kind of interesting that the villain is is he's a, he's a Nazi spy, but he's also a heroic actor. You, the like the third, the th- was it the third most popular actor third in America? He's the, he, in America, yeah, yeah. It's like the Errol Flynn, yep, uh, type character. No, I love that he was the. the the, the villain, but he was the hero of the movies. Yeah, it's almost similar to the same villain uh, that Hugh Grant plays in uh, Paddington Two, which I haven't but, seen yet. But yeah, it's <laughs> another. But now, I, now makes me want to see it even more. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's very, uh, very close. Um, I, it, uh, it's kind of interesting that uh, maybe it was a timing thing that this film didn't didn't take off because it was right two years before Jurassic Park. It was right after Batman. It was. Um, Sort of in that right after Dick Tracy, and Dick Tracy didn't do incredibly well either. But it was in that zone of like uh, the Shadow and and yeah. the Phant- well, the Phantom was a little later, but in that early '90s zone where they were trying to redo that adventure serial feel, and people were pushing more towards realism. I think, and yeah, and where the- Indiana Jones is a decade before this, yeah, but it kind of got it right where it mm-hmm. is able to blend that serial with. Real, with yeah. groundedness as much as you can. And this plays out that. like you you should have... I mean, for a kid, it's probably a magical film, especially seeing it in the theaters in, in 91. It would have been like, oh! Yeah. I mean, the, but it has that sort of um, 50s, 40s, 50s adventure series, even 30s adventure series, yeah. radio play kind of feel that you kind of have to be vibed with and almost have a context behind to truly appreciate. Yeah. You mentioned Dick Tracy. We get that giant Jaws esque villain. Yeah, yeah. His uh, I, I was looking that up too. I think his name is Tiny Ben or Tiny Stan. Or of course, like name's something Tiny. something like that. Uh, Rick Baker did that makeup, which is oh. really really cool. It's really cool, but it also feels the whole time like he's just wearing a mask. Oh, yeah, he's totally wearing a mask. It's 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 and it seems very inspired by the Dick Tra- Tracy makeup the year before. Oh, which I believe was Dick Smith and not Rick Baker. But yeah, and he gets that great intro where you just see the silhouette of him. And you see yeah. a great, amazing oh, John yeah, line. With uh, Shadow Play, you know, it's 
Um, I, I, James Horner's music, it, it brought me right back. To, like, it has that sort of, like, high adventure Amblin. Very um, whimsical. Very whimsical, uh, upbeat. You know, you're in an adventure with this music. It's not, yeah. it, even when it's dark, it's not really dark. I was doing air quotes there. for even That's okay. You, you can hear it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I honestly, I don't know what else to say about it except, uh, oh, the optical work when he's flying is, is holds up pretty decently. I mean, it's it, not bad. You can tell that we were we were wondering when we first started watching the movie uh, when he's in his own plane. Yeah, if, whether if or that not, was a rear projection or not, and it doesn't look like it. It doesn't look like it at all because you can see like later on when he's doing the rocket flying. There's mm. it's clear optical work. You, yep. you can tell, now. but it looks like he was actually in the cockpit of a plane flying. Maybe there was a second stick guy in the front actually flying. That like I, I doubt he was actually flying. No, but yeah. it's possible that they had a like a stunt pilot because the way the plane is designed is the the cockpit of the is actually at the back of the plane. Yeah. So it's entirely possible it's a it's a it's a dual bay plane where there's a pilot in the front, camera guy and then Yeah, I feel like they've just rebuilt the portion that they would see on camera. Yeah. on that. And on mounted that. it on a different plane yeah. or something like that. I think yeah. that's how they would have done it. Yeah, that makes some sense. That's still really really impressive though. Um For that one shot. Just yeah. like we're just well, going to but it. but the shot is kind of brilliant too because the plane gets shot and then you start to see uh, fuel leak across the dash. And then explode into the actual like he can't see, so he's got to punch the cockpit out. It's like, great. There's an elevation of stakes to almost all the set pieces in this that are actually kind of brilliant, and mm-hmm. it's something. I think those little touches. Uh, there's a really great online video uh, talking about Wallace and Gromit action scenes in Wallace and Gromit, which is actually kind of funny because you wouldn't think Wallace and Gromit in action scenes, but that whole elevation of stakes and going from like one extreme to another, but getting all these little details, like a really good example in this movie, uh, there's a part at the very end where um, Paul Sorvino, again, Paul Sorvino's in this, um, turns on Timothy Dalton because he's like, listen, I, I might make my money in a, yeah, I don't remember the exact line. In a, no, he says, but I'm 100% American. Yeah, and he turns on the Nazis, essentially, and then he's he's firing a Tommy gun at all the Nazis, and then the FBI guy that's been chasing them the whole time steps in beside him and starts firing a Tommy and they gun. Look at each they other. look at each other, and he, he, Paul Sorvino has this little smile like, yeah, we're on the same side now. And the little touches like that sort of like elevate the set piece bit by bit by bit because you, you have clear geography then you have clear character motivation, and all of that works together really extremely well in this. Yeah, well, just even, you know, the, the opening of this film you, makes you feel like you're in really good hands because you've got your establishing, you know, their plane, what mm-hmm. they want, uh, and then right away he flies into this, you know, shootout chase scene mm-hmm. that establishes the villains yep. uh, and the FBI at the same time. This is all in the first 10 minutes. All the first, first five minutes. Yeah. You know? Uh, and then they—it's a very f- economical film. Yeah, it's very yeah. economical, but it sets it up. And you even introduce Jennifer Connelly in in not a great way, but no. through the photograph. I was a little concerned about her character at the beginning because I thought she'd have no agency. But it, as the film goes on, uh, it gets a she, bit better. But yeah. she's definitely playing the girlfriend. Yeah, for sure. You know? But she holds her own. Like it's not like she's a damsel waiting to be saved. He literally does fly off to save her. But it's her actions toward the end that actually help. This the whole city. like no well, she's the one that, that discovers that he's a Nazi yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, and all those things uh, she she saves the blueprints in her in her bra of course well, she kills a dude at the end too she uses the flare gun she like yep. like there uh, yes she's the typical in this at least she's the typical girlfriend you know almost the prize to be one character which yeah. is unfortunate but it's also a sign of or a symptom of the the movies at the time especially these high adventure kind of things where. 
you know, and, and especially because they're hearkening back to older adventure serials. Yeah. It's, so that, that leads me to like the one really disturbing scene in the movie yeah. where um, Timothy Dalton's character just happens to have chloroform in his pocket <laughs> yes. and drugs this girl. Yeah. It's almost it, it's either he had it in his pocket or uh, Paul he, Sorvino had a drawer marked chloroform in his desk at the club. Either way, yeah. he got that stuff out real quick. Really, really fast. And it had smelling salts on his bedside table. Yeah. And then Jennifer Connelly even says, Connelly's like, did you chloroform me? Is this the only way you can seduce girls? Yeah. Like, very casually. Yeah. And he wakes her up from this drug stupor and then offers her a glass of scotch or brandy or yeah. whatever it was. And, uh, she's probably looking at it like, did you drug that too? <laughs> yeah. I mean, she does. Well, I mean, by the end of the scene, she has that great line where she yeah, says, yeah. I finally had a scene with uh, uh, Neville Sinclair. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so you know that. So she's just letting the audience know in case they weren't sure. It's like, I was pretending to... Mm-hmm be somewhat smitten by this guy. Uh, but yeah, I mean, at least, you know, a minute later, we're going to discover this guy's a Nazi, so I yeah, guess it's okay exactly. that he's also a serial date rapist. Well, he's definitely done it more than that one time. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's weird. It, it, he's such a scumbag from the start, yet he's Timothy Dalton, and Timothy Dalton is naturally sort of charming while still being a little scummy. It's, it's, it's oh, that's what of, you want in that yeah, day. Yeah, you yeah. want him to be charming enough. That, that you're at least entertained by him and see what he'll do. So the the movie within a movie scenes, was there anything that stood out about, about those to you? Like, oh, we were just talking about the, the precipice under... One of them makes this comment about, do we have to do the whole thing all over again? Because they, they show the, the movie within a movie with mm-hmm. all these different shots. Yep. And it's almost like the movie's making the audience believe that these are all being done at the same time. Which they could technically have multicammed, but that wasn't necessarily what was happening. Sure, it's yeah, just, yeah, yeah. That that is a trope, though, that you have a lot when they show movie making in movies. Is is they play with the whole scene and then they go cut, and it's like perfect. We're we got on. it. Um, they, one a show that's notorious for that is uh, John Claude Van Johnson. Have you seen John Claude Van Damme's new Amazon series? No. Um, okay, so it's got the fucking best premise. All all premise premise. However you say it. Uh, basically all of the low budget DTV action he does is just a cover because he's, he's a secret agent so he flies to, from country to country to country to do these movies as a cover for his secret agent work so meta but every time they do a scene in a movie in that show it's that same trope and they know it's that trope where it's like you'll see an entire scene play out and then they'll go cut we gotta do it again and it's like there's been four million shots you know <laughs> amazing amazing yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the, those scenes were what they were. The only thing that killed me is when um, Bill Campbell is behind the, the one set and makes it fall down. But then yeah. another one falls down 10 feet away that he was nowhere near. Mm-hmm. It's like, what? So he's being blamed for all of this? Well, and that's yeah. the one that actually landed on the actor, I think. Was no, the he, knocked one. A, he knocked on the one that fell on the actor was the one he knocked on. Oh, okay. He was behind that wall. But that scene's got the second deus ex machina in the movie, too, is because he somehow... She's on set with Neville Taylor, right? Yeah. And they're behind a wall, and he sits in front of the other side of the wall. Oh, and, yeah. And he hears – that's what kicks off the entire thing of him trying to hunt uh, Billy Campbell, the rocketeer, down because he overhears him saying, well, I found this jetpack and blah, 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 blah. Awfully That convenient. they've already been looking for that he already accidentally stumbled into because he was flying his plane during the, ter- the chase earlier. Yeah. Uh, and all that stuff is forgivable because of the type of film and the type of story it is. Yeah, well, that yeah, exactly. It's like those those serial things. You just have to. It, it, she just yeah. happens to be an actor. 
he happens to be, yeah. Because otherwise, how do those two things ever come together other than the fact that it's 1938 Hollywood? And and Hollywood is very small in 1938. Like, the scope of the film is big, but everybody knows each other, it seems like. Yeah, because they're only making a dozen pictures a year at this point, you know? Mm -hmm. Maybe a little bit more. But they're not making, churning out tons and tons of stuff. So it's like an an actor's under contracts and, and all those things. Uh... So was it? What did you expect this film to be compared to what it actually was? I think it hit the mark, pretty much where I expected it to land in terms of being slightly campy. Um, I didn't know uh, the extent of the cast. I was really excited to see all Mm -hmm. those guys playing together, Uh, and 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 I mentioned what we were watching. Is like I had a huge childhood crush on Jennifer Connelly. Because of so, career opportunities. Career opportunities. Yeah. So uh, I'll watch Jennifer Connelly in anything just because I think she's so... And she's perfect. You know, she's done it in numerous pictures. Uh, but she has that great quality of, you know, the yesteryear look. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this... That she, sort of timeless... I mean, they're doing that with key lighting, too, and stuff like that. But sure. Sort of, sort so she's got timeless, those... She's got those yeah. Facial features that really, really lend themselves to her being in period films. Like she did Inventing the Abbots as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, later on, Cinderella Man. But I'm trying to think of others. I think she's done more than that in period films. But well, I mean, things like Labyrinth is supposed to. It's not a period film, but it's supposed to have a classical look for her. Yeah, Requiem uh, for Dreams, very yeah. period. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the ass to ass scene in particular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, uh, we, we went there, huh? <laughs> um, <laughs> moving on. Moving on. So uh, yeah. It, it, uh, one thing I really appreciate about this and pretty much all of Joe Johnson's work um, is he shoots a lot of, of wide shots and masters and, and like it has that sort of traditional feel of old Hollywood where, you know, most of the dialogue is not done in close. It's, it's done in like medium wides uh, so you can take in the entire scene because when you've got that kind of production design, you show that production design. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, it's not overly cut. It's it's very it's very fluid. But you're not punching in on things too much. You know, you you get to see the whole scene play out. No, when he and and this is like the way I like I like to work as well. Is like when you use a close up, it matters. Mm-hmm. It means something because you spend spend the time wide. Uh, it's interesting, and you can you can tell why you know a, a decade and a half later or two decades later, I guess it is. Uh, they pick him to do the first Captain America. Yes. You know, you can see the seeds of that in here. Absolutely. Um, and, but that, that being said, you know, he, he did that and it, Jumanji and Jurassic Park 3 in the 90s plus October. Like, he, he did enough films in the 90s that had that sort of... I mean, Jurassic Park 3 is the one everybody says is the worst of the, of the series, but it's still very... It still feels like Jurassic Park. It still has that, to some extent, has that sort of, like epic kind of scope to everything it's very clear why they hired somebody who's reliable and who they know is going to deliver a film that looks good and will play to the bigger audience for the first Avenger Mm -hmm. simply because uh, you know they could take risks later but they need those first few films they got Kenneth Branagh they got you know they got people they knew could deliver a film that people are going to enjoy. Yeah, they were messing around no, in phase fucking, one. <laughs> they were not fucking around at all. Um, I mean, I guess John Favreau, but even then he wasn't really a risk. But at that point, they were just messing around with the idea of Marvel Cinematic Universe altogether. Period. Period. But, but they hired people that that they knew would deliver. And Joe Johnson clearly is a director that, um, while he's not somebody who's, who's probably like, nobody has a Joe Johnson section on their video shelf. I do. You do? You do? 
Well, I, I, my movies are organized so sort of alphabetical by director. By director yeah, so I, I, I would do that, but I have too many movies now, and I've just I've given up on sorting. I've just like I have this sixth sense where I'm like it's there, and yeah. then I, but uh, I'm all I'm trying to say is that. Um, he's not like, you know, there's people that dedicate their lives to like, I, I love the John Carpenters and the Wes Cravens yeah, and, yeah. And, and he's not that kind of brand director, but he's a fucking reliable director. Like he, he yeah. will deliver a solid film that people will leave the theater and go, yeah, that delivered what I was expecting. Yeah. And, and that's, oh, you need people like that. <laughs> yeah, no, 100%. Yeah, I'm trying to think, who else was part of Phase 1? Loose Letterer did The Hulk. He did. Uh, I, I always forget that uh, The Incredible Hulk was, was uh, part in, of Phase 1. In theory. Well, they've got other no, acting. Well, it is. But, um, yeah, he, he he did Phase 1. Kenneth Branagh did Thor. Uh, and that's it, really. And Whedon did And then Whedon did The Avengers. Um, yeah, so that's it, really. Yeah, there wasn't much to Phase 1. Like, Phase 1 included... Iron Man 1 and 2. Which were both Fravro, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, so... Yeah, that's it. Yep. And then you're in, and then you're out. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. It, but it's it's still interesting that like, so Joe Johnson's got another. Um, well, at least it says it's in development. But coming up, he's got uh, another Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe movie. Um, whatever Narnia movie coming the up. Silver Chair. These. Yeah, next. he's doing yeah. Silver Chair. Uh, but the, his last feature that he directed was like under two million. Like it was way scaled down. It was like under two mil, uh, fast and dirty thriller in an office space. Oh, it'd be fascinating to see him work in that world. Yeah, my well, again, my friend Adam Mason co-wrote it. Oh, you mentioned that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's a he's a consulting producer on Life Changer, and um, he, yeah, he it would be an interesting discussion with Adam to, to see how that worked because you know there's really no aside from Max Manella, there's uh, the the guy from. Um, uh, was he from Spider Spider Man? I can't remember. Anyway, um, oh, from uh, Social Network. The yes, yeah. Anyway, it, he's the main actor in it, um, but it's really just about like him being chased by a hitman through an office after hours kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's such a scaled back and and like just a sort of tight little thriller at sub two million. Um, but done by a guy like Joe Johnson, it's got to be. It'd be I, it was all right. Oh, what's it called? Uh, not safe for work. And it's out now. You can yeah. Watch it came it. out in twenty fourteen. Oh, there you go. Check it out. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to check that out. Not safe for work. Yeah, that's very exciting. Yeah, it's all right. Um, it, it's surprising that Disney hasn't gone back to this well. You mean to do another film like this? You, or you don't think they haven't because they own Marvel? No, no. But yeah. just in terms of like, like this this specific property. Oh, like a Rocketeer sequel? Yeah, you'd have to or a reboot. It would be a reboot. Maybe a reboot point. could be interesting. Yeah. You couldn't do a sequel now. I think maybe the they might be just so vested in in the Marvel. Like I can't speak for what Disney's up to. Maybe they have a Rocketeer sequel in, in in the works. We don't know. But maybe they're so vested in Marvel and and the super. I just feel like they really need a hit at this point. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. That that Disney's struggling, man. I'm telling. <laughs> Like, uh, it's not like they own the world or anything. Um, yeah, but, with but, all the live-action remakes of their animated yeah. films, all their Marvels, all their mm. Star Wars. I just feel like they really just need to get but back like, to their they, Rocketeer. They kind of have the Rocketeer and Iron Man. It's just the extreme Rocketeer from 2018. Well, know? yeah, we were saying yeah. when we were watching this, like, the Rocketeer is essentially Iron Man and Captain America together. Yep. To some, you know, yep. You've got the whole, you've got the, the, the wholesomeness of, of Steve Rogers and then the flying in the sky. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's really it. Yeah. It's a metal. That's there's not a ton of. He's not rich or wealthy or or but quippy. That, but that being said, I, I that's one another bonus for this film is that the story is big by the end of it, but it feels really like small and personal. Small and personal. 
Yeah, no, but the, and that's what and that's why I like the third act so much because and and that I came around to this idea that he wasn't off saving kittens and trees mm-hmm. and during the during the second act because it went it it did that great thing where it's like oh he's is saving the world but it's but, it's almost in it's it's almost he's because he's there and he can do it instead yeah, of he didn't set out to do it well it's not like he learns about this plan and then he learns about the airship and then he's like. Oh, going to put on that helmet and I'm going to go out and save them. It's more like literally just there to save his girl. Yeah, exactly. And then it just so happens that he's the only one who can get to the airship when it's taking off. And, and they're, they even like, look at him. Well, you know, Oh, maybe, maybe we're not fucked. He's flying off now to take. See, in that, and that, now that I'm thinking of this way, I'd like to think that Jennifer Connelly is the one that saves the world. Yeah. Cause she's aware of the whole plan, the whole scheme. Mm hmm. And he's just going to save her. Well, a lot of the things she does actually sets the, uh, the heroes like, the ability for them to win in motion. And she like, gives him the credit at the end. Yeah. They're sitting in the diner and she's like, you're the man that saved the world. Yep. Real humble. That's uh, Jennifer <laughs> that, Connelly. Uh, whatever her character name was that I've forgotten. Jenny. Was yeah, it Jenny? Right. Some version oh, so of Jenny. Literally Jennifer. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah it was. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was totally Jenny. Um, yeah, there's, there's just a lot of little, little touches that I really liked. Um, I think... Uh, he kept on reminding me of Josh Hartnett. Yeah. Another, another actor person? that could have gone, and then he's still really solid. He's still working, but, you know, he does, like, Bon Raku and Penny Dreadful and, like, yeah. good, good supporting roles. And I think, although he was the lead in Bon Raku, but nobody saw it. Um, Don't, I've never even heard of that movie. Well, there you go. There we go. They played Midnight Madness, like, six years ago or yeah. so. I've always liked Josh Hartnett. Yeah, he's, he's good. He's, yeah, he's, he's good. He's a good actor. Um... Yeah. Uh, what else can is there to be said on, about this film? I really liked it. Yeah, I did too. I thought I thought I, I'm almost glad I saw it now, even though I'm sure it would have been a favorite of mine as a kid. Yeah, it's just uh, one thing I've noticed lately is because what I've been doing is I've been buying up my childhood to some extent. What, <laughs> what, I, what I mean by that is I've been movies that I had on VHS when I was a kid that I never ported, like I didn't buy the DVD version or I didn't upgrade. I've been upgrading. I've been buying like, you know, box sets of like, I've got all the Warlock sequels. I've got all, you know, whatever it is and rewatching these movies when I was younger. And the reason being two reasons. One of them is I, I kind of just, I'm looking to figure out what it was that gave me the bug to begin with. Like what, what makes up the picture of what my dream was to be a filmmaker. And the other is to just sort of see, because I lived in a small town and I didn't really have a lot of contact with people outside of my friends and school and stuff like that. Yeah. But it was a very small, like it was, you know, I, I was raised by my parents and I was raised by movies. And, yeah. and I'm kind of like both the good parts of my personality and the toxic parts of my personality. I'm trying to see what the, <laughs> sor- what the source of those were. And what have you learned so far? Uh, that I watched a lot of fucked up stuff when I was younger. But also just that I, I get why I have the love for film that I do growing up when I did. And I'm not sure if I was 20 years younger, I'd be the same person because it's a, it, it's a different, it's a completely different feel right now in terms of the, what ends up in the theaters, what has been made since the early 2000s. Like there's a lot of great blockbusters. There's a lot of indie stuff that's really, really cool, but there's a lot of it. And yeah. what there wasn't back then, there, even though there was a lot of films everybody was watching similar stuff and the stuff you had access to is it, it almost formed a collective consciousness. Well, it was also, it felt like things were more curated. Yes. You know, when we were too. younger, it was like, there seemed to be things that were bad just disappeared instantly. Mm-hmm. Well, now it's just things, everything kind of lingers, whether it's good or bad. Uh, and you have to almost 
curate it yourself or find things that Well, do. there's almost too much of it. Like, oh, there's just too much of everything. Yeah. Yeah, it, I, don't, I don't know how you wade through it all. Well, and that's why I think why these movies left such an imprint on me and on, on, on people of that generation is because we only, we can rewatch these movies. We, we had them in our collection or we went to the theaters several times to watch them. And the, But the next event movie might have been two months away. It might have been six months away. Yeah, it's not every weekend. No, it, it wasn't five every weekend. It wasn't... And then and plus all the VOD releases, plus all the... You know, you could you could try and watch Netflix until the day you die and you'll never reach the end of it. It's... Yeah, I remember uh, that feeling when it, when it first... When Netflix first started to really pump out, like especially their original series, mm-hmm. and then I just remember there was one point where in time where I just accepted the fact that I'm like I'm not going to watch all these. I can't. You it's can't. Impossible. It's impossible. So now I'm so. It did, but it also just felt like this great burden was relieved for me. <laughs> yeah. Where I'm like, oh great, I'm just going to actually watch the ones I want to watch, yep. as opposed to trying to catch everything just to keep up because there is no keeping up. No, but I, I was like a completist when I was younger, and I still same. Where I just I had to see everything that mattered. I had to see like if I read about it in Fangoria, or I read about it in, in Entertainment Weekly because I had subscriptions to both or whatever it was. I had to see it if it, it caught my interest. And now you know a hundred things will catch my interest, and I'll go. Oh, I've got time for about four of these. It's, yeah, it's just, and this movie is one of those things where, I, as a kid, like if I saw this when I was ten or eleven, guaranteed, I would have bought this Blu-ray six years ago. I would have bought the DVD when sure. it came in two thousand three. I would have had it on VHS from it. Like I would have rebought, 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 and with movies of that era, that like you know, I, I can't count the number of dra- copies of Jurassic Park and Evil Dead, and like I bought over the years, yeah, you know, and, and like resold or given away. Well, I don't need this edition anymore. I've got the new edition of Army of Darkness. <laughs> or, or rebought, forgetting that you upgraded it already. Yeah, oh, I've done that before too. Yeah, That's, I have an app now that helps me with that. Yeah, I, 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 I'm not that organized. I've got just too much. Like, I, I, it boggles the mind the stuff that ends up on Blu-ray now. It, like, as in collectors' editions, where you're like, really? And then there's some stuff that just doesn't. No, well, there's definitely th- movies that are lost to time, uh, but. That sometimes is just to do with uh, like who, who owns the right, who owns the rights, and like will they let those rights go? Or are they sitting on the rights for a particular reason? Um, you know, Warner Archives notorious for that. They'll they'll sit on a movie forever, and it should I'm, have had a release ages ago. I'm and, still waiting for my World According to Gart Blu-ray. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> yeah. It's because I have my I, I've almost completely upgraded my VHSs mm-hmm. in my collection, but I have a list of about a dozen that I just. Are, haven't been re-released or yeah. released properly that I just can't find anywhere. Well, like, I'll, I'll I'll do things like I'll buy a... This bugs the shit out of me, but I'll buy, like, an, uh, either an overseas... Because I, I have a region-free player, so sometimes they'll end up with additions. Uh, like, a good example, I just did this. Um, Brian Usna did an anthology called Necronomicon, Book of the Dead, that was on VHS, but because of rights issues, never made it to DVD. Right. But there's a great Blu-ray out of France. So, because the rights there weren't as messy, that's the one copy in the world you can actually get now. Nice, right? And so, it plays in its right region. No, you can no, play no. It. I have a region yeah, yeah, player, yeah. so I'm able right. to import. So I, I end up bringing, I end up importing a bunch of stuff that, like in certain, like in oh Australia, it's available. It's not available anywhere else, kind of thing, um, because obviously everything's territorial and broken yeah. up and that sort of thing. But see, you have that thing. It's the same as like we had the same. So we did have the same child in the sense that it's yeah. like, and the difference between like people growing up now in this era and um, and us is that we had and Patton Oswalt wrote this great uh, essay on this but we were the generation where we we existed before the internet mm-hmm. and when it first came out 
And, and then after. And then after. And we got used to having to track shit down oh. and be real detectives about it. Oh, man. Like, so uh, that meant magazine subscription before the internet. Yeah. That meant magazine subscriptions. Like, there's so many people, even early, older than us, you know, they'd buy Starlog or they'd buy Fangoria or they, whatever it is. That's how they found out about things. Uh, they, you know, and then if I wanted, say, uh, the director's cut of Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. The only way to get it, and I own this and a bunch of other things, the only way to get it would be like there'd be a company in Toronto called Video Vortex that has some legal gray area where they can do tape dubs of unrated cuts because the unrated cuts aren't copyrighted yeah. because they're just director's work prints and stuff like that. So you would mail away for the catalog and wait six weeks, and then the catalog would arrive and you'd flip through it and go, oh, that's cool, that's cool, that's cool. You'd fill out an order form, mail that back, wait another six weeks, and then you'd have your tape. Yeah. In three months. Yeah. So, like, oh, but, and, yeah. And, but, but we, we have more patience then, so we're okay. Yeah. Right. But well, even just, it's but funny. But there was a, there was a joy to that hunt, though. There oh, was, there was so much joy to it. Yeah. And then, and as you collect it, you're like, oh, now I've got them all. Yeah. And, but then you moved on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even it's funny, like, I have a, a young filmmaker friend, she was over on the podcast a little while ago. Uh, and she, in this book, this conversations with Wilder, it's Cameron Crowe's book with Billy Wilder. Mm-hmm. She was talking about how she had been searching for this book her entire life because she'd heard about it and someone let her borrow it so she'd be able to skim through it, but she could never find it anywhere. Mm-hmm. So right after she left, I went online, I found it on eBay and within 10 minutes and then had it sent to my house. That's the thing, right? Is if you want something now, it doesn't matter how unavailable it is. You can probably track it down through the internet. Yeah. There was stuff that like was I remember this in, again. I, I'm a horror head, right? So I had a have a cousin named Graham who I grew up uh, hang, like idolizing to some extent, just because he was maybe eight nine years older than me. Fucking loved horror, and you know each, I'd go over and he'd show me horror movies and stuff. And I remember there was a period of time, and this is a, this is gonna be hilarious to any horror fan who's. who's you know, ever bought Evil Dead 2 on DVD or Blu-ray or whatever. There was a time in the 90s where you just couldn't fucking find Evil Dead 2. The tapes were either at video stores you could rent potentially, but they would not sell them because they weren't available. And then some, most of the time, you just can't fucking find that tape. So I remember going to a Hollywood video in Keswick or something like that and going, holy shit, Evil Dead 2! And then the next time I saw Grandma, I was like, yeah, I saw a copy in Hollywood video in Keswick and right into the car and drove there. Yeah. Like, it was like, it's there! You know, and this is like, there was, it was, it's, I'm, it's a period of time between after the tape initially dropped and all the copies fucking disappeared and before the DVDs started getting coming out through Anchor Bay in like late 90s, early 2000s and stuff like that, there was a dead zone where you couldn't find that movie, which is hilarious now because there's been 15 editions or whatever. Yeah, now, yeah, yeah. yeah. But there's still that. There's still, I remember finding like VHS copies of certain old, old movies mm-hmm. at yard sales and freaking out because like, oh my God, I can't believe I've never, I've never been able to find this or order it. I think I, yeah. I, the first time I found All About Eve on... Mm-hmm. Uh, or was it that one of those kind of movies uh, before the, the DVDs were out? I yeah. got really excited, and my high school girlfriend just did not understand. She's yeah. like, it's just an, VHS an old movie. I'm like, you don't get it. Mm-hmm. I've been looking for this goddamn Or thing. Asian action cinema was so hard to get. at a, Like, you, you had to go to a company like Video Vortex if you wanted a John Woo movie that wasn't the killer. You know, if you yeah. wanted to, any of his other Asian stuff or any of his other films that he made in Hong Kong... You know, you just couldn't get them. It was hard-boiled or the killer or nothing. And then you had to really, really search if you wanted to see, like, Bullet in the Head or Once a Thief, or, like, the original Once a Thief, not the TV series. Yeah. Uh, like, like, it was, it was no, a lot of No, for the longest work. time, it was, like, unless it was, like, something like that or it was, like, the Criterion Collection yep. decided to. It was, like, a lot of those foreign films were just hard to come by unless mm-hmm. some group decided to curate them in a way. Battle Royale was so hard to find. Battle Royale 2 never made it to Canada. 
I, I, yeah, anyway, I'm not going to go into that. <laughs> but there was a copy that ended up in Toronto being renting that I, I, I found and brought in and then sold the suspect. And yeah, nice. anyway, that was early 2000s. But yeah, we've kind of gone on a side tangent here. No, no, but, this is the whole point of yeah, it, though, is, is yeah. to get, get into this stuff. But, but it was a different thing being, and even like, you know, I'd rent, I'd, I'd tape stuff off a of satellite. Like we got the big dish around 15 or when I was 15 or 16, we got the big dish. So you'd, you'd set your VCR to tape off, off satellite because IFC, the independent film channel is playing, even cowgirls get the blues at, you know, 2 AM or, you know, I think clerks, the first time I saw clerks was off of the independent film channel, you know, things like, yeah. like that, um, where you need. You know, I grew up with five channels initially, but yeah. until I was about the age of thirteen. So if I needed to see something, it would be like Red Heat's on TV, and it's been edited badly for television, and that's the version of Red Heat I saw. Yeah, and I probably never. I still haven't seen the actual version of Red Heat. You know, like <laughs> I hadn't until I was until it came out, and I was a teenager, and I bought it on VHS for the first time. I only had a copy of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom mm-hmm. that cut out. During the uh, mine car chase, oh, really? so I never knew how it ended <laughs> for for years. I just rewatch it and love it, and just go. Well, that's how it ends. Yeah, it ends. no, it ended just after when all the water's rushing out. Mm-hmm. It stopped there. That's awesome. And it wasn't until years later. And so now when I rewatch it, it feels weird to, to go past that part because it's like, oh, this isn't. This is yeah. It just feels anyway. But I had that memory. I grew <laughs> up with. Um, I've told this story before on the podcast, but uh, my uncle was a giant movie buff. And so he would, you know, just whatever movies he rented from the video store, he would, you know, pirate onto tapes. Yeah. Tapes. But he would do like the LP or whatever the longest one is. So you can fit three, three, three to four movies, movies on, the on the tape. Yep. But they weren't curated in any way that it's like, oh, here's all three Back to the Future movies or this. It was just whatever random stuff. Mm-hmm. So the tapes were, had no, uh, you know, theme to them. It was just it could be like a horror film, a western film, mm-hmm. and, a, and a science fiction film on the same tape. And so that's how I watched movies, was these giant marathons of three movies in a row that had no correlation to each other. And so I came out of that just with this genre mashup yep. in me, and to the point where to this day I love every, a little bit of everything. Yeah, that's, that's the I mean, like I said, I was a monster kid and a horror head, but uh, gradually over time you start to get an appreciation for everything. And uh, I, there are certain subgenres that I, I still all enjoy and I'll sit through, but I'm not going to actively seek out. Like, I'm not going to go watch a romantic comedy that, um, unless it's something that I've already heard, hey, this is kind of good. I'm yeah. not going to be like, oh, I can't wait to see just friends you know or whatever else that's a very specific uh, I don't know I, it was the first thing that came to mind I, I don't know but like I, I went and saw blockers and like of, the, of these modern sort of like yeah. uh, uh, even though that's not really a rom-com it's a coming of age comedy to some extent but still it's yeah, yeah. that falls under yeah that's, that's a weird one because it's like it's, it's technically a high school movie but it's about yep. the parents yeah but I, like I, I, I while still I love going to the movies I love watching films um, I, it's just I guess when I was younger I, I was curating it more because I had to choose you had to go to the video store you had to pick one or two tapes you, you or whatever yeah. you know you, you you're committing yeah you're committing and you're gonna have that tape for the next few days so <laughs> or, yeah. or new releases overnight usually but that, yeah, and yeah, you're probably like me. Whatever you watched that night, you'd watch the next morning. Probably, again. it's possible. It depends. It depends on the movie, right? If, if it was something I loved, I'll be like, yeah, of course I'm going to watch that again. I think I watched it again the next morning, whether I loved it or not. Oh, yeah, just because I was really into even subconsciously studying movies at that point in my life, without even 
knowing I was doing that. I think mm. I was just really, I liked not, now that I knew the story, being able to just really sit back and observe it in a different way. Well, I still remember, um, and this is, this is silly because the movie I was doing it with is silly, but um, I remember when I first got into wanting to do movies, like I probably was about 15 when I first started going, yeah, I'll, I'll make movies, that's what I'm going to do. Before that, I just really liked movies, but I still remember sitting down, I think it was Children, Cor- Children of the Corn 3, Urban Sacrifice, uh, sitting down with a notepad and going, okay, there's, there's a cut every, for this set piece, there's a cut every two seconds, three seconds, they put together this shot and this shot, and that's how the penetration of the knife going through the head happened. And like I was, I was breaking it down with a notepad yeah. at, at the age of fifteen or sixteen, you know. And, and that's kind of what I did with a lot of stuff to kind of, to get the editing rhythms down yep. to understand. And then when I went to make my own movies, I'd be like, "Do you still have that document?" Uh, I don't know, somewhere. Possibly, yeah. yeah. It's I, I have a binder of old stuff. I like. I used yeah. to do movie reviews for my local paper when I was a teenager. Like I got a binder full of yeah. stuff. It's possible. But I don't know. I have, I, when I was in grade eight, I, I cranked out like my parents' super old typewriter mm-hmm. and I um, transcribed the movie Clue. Nice. Um, just scene by scene. And I, I didn't, I had never read, read a screenplay before uh, or anything like that. So I, I didn't know format for screenplay, but I just wrote the dialogue. And then I don't know if I wrote action scenes. I didn't know if you, I knew that you were supposed to do that or yeah, not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I still have it somewhere, <laughs> like my hand-typed transcript of Clue. And I just I would watch like three seconds of the movie and then try to get it down. Uh, but again, I don't even know why. Like at that point, I still I wasn't... Well, you don't... I don't think the, in those early days you're really that focused on the why? exact why. It's more like I used to audio record things like Ghostbusters on a boombox pushed against the TV and things where it was... And I would listen See, back to the dialogue from Ghostbusters without the picture. <laughs> for whatever reason. I don't know why. Yeah. I just did it. It was just a thing that I did. I, I Yeah. Know. And so for me, I think for a clue, yeah. I just wanted to study the dialogue or reread it and have it available. Cause we didn't, again, it was just pre internet. Yep. You know, I didn't live in a big city where I, where they had stores where you could buy screenplays. Yeah. I didn't even know that was a thing. That yeah, existed no for idea. me at that point. Well, the first just, time I saw a screenplay you could buy in a bookstore, I went, "Why? Why would you want to do? It's <laughs> yeah. not a book." <laughs> but yeah. no, as soon as I, as soon as chapters started selling them, probably when I was in high school, I remember there was this one um, company that that did like all the Oscar winners, mm. uh, and so like I got like the American Beauty one, the Pulp Fiction one, and uh, and I can't remember what the company's name is. I have a bunch of them downstairs still, but I remember starting to see them cropping out at that point. Uh, and so it was pre-internet now where it's like if there's, a, if there's a movie that exists you can probably find the script online now well yeah. there was uh, was it called Drew Scriptorama yeah Remember Drew Scriptorama yeah. yes they had, they had all kinds of screenplays on that site that was early 2000s late 90s I that believe. was one of the first things I discovered yeah. when, I, when I when I got the, the dial up inter- shitty internet in yeah. the house was Drew, was Drew Scriptorama and there was uh, there was other sites too where you could like learn how to make fake blood like the early internet was a boon for uh, people who wanted to be filmmakers because people were uh, starting to share their tactics online for the first time ever and you're like fuck yeah, yeah. you know like uh, I, I I still use the Kool-Aid blood I, I don't if I'm on I'm like someone else is doing effects but if I need to whip up a batch of blood it's in my fucking head I can make blood in about 30 minutes that Quick, looks what's great the, what's the the Kool-Aid blood. Sure, 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 sure. Well, sure, Kool-Aid your... blood is the simplest thing in the world. It's one cup of water for and one tablespoon of flour and red and green Kool-Aid to get the consistency down so it's the right red-brown color. And you just boil the water, you drop the, the flour into it, you mix it in so there's no 
chunks. You add the Kool-Aid, you mix that in. Uh, you, it's, you use less water or flour if you or you want to do mouth blood or something runny or more flour if you want it to be thicker so it'll it'll run. Uh, that's it. That's the whole recipe. There you go. It works. Justin's Kool-Aid blood recipe. It, it was not mine, though. I got it off of some site in, like, 1999, like, and I've been using it to this day whenever I need to whip up blood quickly for something stupid. Like, it's <laughs> it's cheaper than buying blood powder or using gel blood or, what you know, like, buying stage blood. Does it stain like a bastard? Yeah, though? it can. You know, <laughs> you know, well, this is how much it stains. I did this short film when I was in high school called Retribution of the Meek, which, if people play Magic the Gathering, that's a magic card. Um, but I, that's what I called the short. And there's this part where a character... And we used a real shotgun because you're kids, right? There was no shells in it. But uh, there's a part where I did a air pressure squib, which I also learned about online, which is basically a garden sprayer where you, you put, attach a hose to it, you pump it up, and then you cork one end and put, drill a tiny hole in the end, and you fill the, the hose with your blood recipe, right? And you can attach that to pe- parts of people's bodies. So there's a scene earlier in the movie where I had attached, run up my sister's back so that I could blow her back out, which worked beautifully for, you know, shitty yeah, high school. Yeah, yeah. Short film, but there's a scene where I'm running it up the back of uh, the back of a character's head, and the shotgun's under the chin, and then bam, the, the back of their head blows up all over the wall. So I shot this in the basement of our house, which is all porous concrete all the way around, right? Yeah. And the first one didn't look great, so I moved to a new section of the wall. Bam. <laughs> new you section of the wall. Clean it up. Bam. Not only couldn't I clean it up, the concrete was porous, so it just sucked the blood into the wall. So it looked like we had a kill room where we used a firing squad and just shot a whole row of people. And my dad couldn't get rid of it. Paint wouldn't take care of it. It just wouldn't go. And I still laugh thinking, this is why, why I think. So in 2014, I went back to my old house where I grew up in. And uh, they wouldn't let us inside. I called ahead. And, they, but the, and the, the guy's wife, they let us come over. And I walked our backfields and all this sort of, sort of thing just as a, like a reconnection with Sure. Um, But his wife said, said, the house is messy. We don't want to let you inside. And whatever the reason was, they probably just thought it was weird. But um, they they told me that I I was like, well, I really wanted to see this. What what had come of this wood room where I'd done all these fucking head squibs. And they're like, oh, it's all different. We put up shelving all around the walls. And I went, you just did it to cover the bloodstains, didn't you? (laughs) (laughs) We couldn't get the bloodstains. So we just put shelving up around the entire room. <laughs> That's amazing. Your yeah. legacy lives on. Yep, exactly. But uh, yeah, it, it stains. It's not the. It, it's not a great blood for that purpose. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, anyway, getting back to the idea of that era we grew up in, I think those movies hold a certain power for that whole generation. And part of the reason there's so much vitriol and um, just people so married to the idea of their past, like how nostalgia is almost turned toxic. To some extent, at this no, point, no, to some extent, it, no, it completely has yeah. turned toxic. It's bec- and and I tried to talk about this on Facebook the other day on some thread somewhere, where somebody was just talking. They were trashing the shit out of the new Jurassic Park movie. I loved it. I thought it was a lot of fun. It's not the best thing, but for, for what it is, it's, it's a lot of fun. But they were trashing it and saying, "Oh, it's just terrible" and all that sort of thing. And I was trying to explain, like, listen, these films from the '90s that you remember were very, very good films. But it's more than the quality of the film that is making you believe. Yeah. Put it on this pedestal. It's it's the the, the time you saw time it. Time you saw it. 
you know, the age you were at, the fact that this effects technology was a new thing that like the spectacle that you could put on screen in the early 90s was so new to the people who were growing up watching these films in the 80s that it was like a whole world opening up in front of you. It's like, I've never seen anything like that before. First time you saw a dinosaur. Yeah, exactly. Um, beyond, like, Independence Day. Like, yeah. even though it's, I don't think it's a fantastic film. Oh, Independence Day does not stand out. At the no. time, though, it, yeah. was, it was mind-blowing. I loved Independence Day yeah. when it first So I've still out. got the soft spot for it because of the time I saw it in, the feeling I had in the theater... Uh, I still remember seeing Jurassic Park for the first time, and I actually had read the novel before I saw Jurassic Park. Like, I, I from a Scholastic book fair, I bought the novel uh, yeah, of same. Jurassic Park, That's and I read mind. it before I saw the movie, and I was anticipating the, the movie to be like the book, and I, it was one of the first times I read a book and then seen a movie and been like, yeah, they changed a lot, but you know what? That's a fucking great movie. And I wasn't thinking fucking great. I was thinking yeah. like, oh, wow. I'm that was a gosh darn good yeah, movie. I gotta go see that thing again. But, um... <laughs> I don't know if my voice was that high. I was uh, just really scared, sad they killed Newman. Yeah. In the movie. Well, the book, uh, Malcolm Dies, yeah. Muldoon Lives. Um, there's a couple other characters that are in it. Which like, always pissed me off yeah. that uh, Michael Crichton killed off Malcolm, but then made him the hero of his sequel book. Yeah, yeah. He also but wrote. the sequel book is the sequel to the movie. Oh, the, I understand. It's so weird. But it was just such yeah. a weird thing that it's like... I you barely remember the Lost World book. I read it. I don't remember it. It was, it was. I remember the river part, I think. They were, they were going up river at one point. Anyway, yeah. But at that point, it was just like, okay, you've abandoned your original. Yep. Yeah. But I uh, like things like The Relic. I read The Relic, and then I saw the movie, and that's sort of close, except for removing the best character and not putting him in the movie. For, and that character has lived on way longer than the fucking Relic movie has. Oh, hilarious. Pendergast. So okay. there's this FBI agent named Pendergast who was introduced in The Relic, the book. Okay. Okay. He's gone on to be the lead in these authors, 20 books by this authors. The Pendergast is an ongoing series now. And The Relic was the first book he was in, and he was in the sequel Reliquary. They completely cut him out of the movie. They, they didn't even put him in the screenplay. They kept with DaCosta, who's who Michael Madsen plays in the movie, and or Tom Sizemore. Tom Sizemore. Who's t- <laughs> I can, yeah, they're they're not interchangeable. <laughs> no, but, but they get confused. Yeah, so uh, they stuck with the Costa because I guess he's a grounded New York City cop, and Pendergast was like uh, Sherlock Holmes in the modern day, and to some extent. But I was so waiting to see Pendergast on screen because I read the book. And I'm rambling at this point. That's um, okay. But not in the movie. But they just kept writing him, and it's like 2018. There's probably been 20 to 25 Pendergast novels. Oh, there yeah. is. <laughs> Amazing. It's like the short sightedness of. Yeah. yeah. No, I've been able to. I mean, the one benefit of having a nine year old is being able to go rewatch these older movies I loved as a kid mm-hmm. almost for the first time again through his eyes. And so, and this is something for sure I'm going to pick up at some point. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and because I think he'll dig this. I think he would. And he'll be, he'll be a kid. Here's the thing he'll look at the back and be like, Joe Johnson, he did Jumanji. Yeah. Like, he'll, he is one of those kids because. He's mine, and he is mm-hmm. is raised in a house where the the films are respected. Are, well, like, just in alphabetical order by directors. Okay. so he knows he he has to know who directed the movie if he wants to watch it. That's interesting. I'm a dick. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> no, but he loves. He's just. But he's also just taken to it, and he really, really digs it, and he likes to go through and go. Oh, they did this before, and he's he's curious about. It's it's one of those things where, it's like. I'm almost unlocking levels on a video game mm-hmm. where he wants to, he, he asks, about, what are these movies? I was like, well, you can't watch that yet. Yeah. He keeps on drifting over the Tarantino section. I'm like, not quite, but not yet. But when we get there, <laughs> yep. Oh boy, that's yeah. going to be fun for us mm-hmm. one day. 
Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. But even even without the kids, though, a lot of rewatching this stuff after not seeing it for 20 years is like watching it again for the first time. I forget what quote it is. The most prominent place I've seen the quote used, though, was in 12 Monkeys. And I, I rewatched that maybe three years ago. I rewatched it for the first time since the 90s. And there's a part where um, they're, I think they're watching Vertigo in a movie theater. It's, it's Bruce Willis and is it Madeline Stowe who's in that movie? I think so. They're watching Vertigo and Bruce Willis says something like, you know, I've seen this movie before, but I don't remember it like this. And I, I and I, I, I realize that it's not the movie that's changed; it's me who has. And you end up, love that. You end up rewatching these movies, and you've changed so much that your entire perspective on the film has changed. So that whole concept of the idea of that held up or that didn't really depends on who the fuck you are at that given time. There's certain movies I'm terrified to rewatch as an adult because I love. I Return to Oz. Do you remember this? Oh, dude, you have to watch Return to Oz as an adult. You have. to. I have it downstairs. It's incredible. It was my favorite movie when I was like okay. eight. Yeah, and this is the crazy part. Watch it as an adult. There's a few things that stand out. One of them is it's fucking terrifying. Yeah, the wheelers. No, the wheelers and are the terrifying to a kid. The concept of the movie is terrifying to an adult. I have a theory about the movie. Okay, you got, when was the last time you watched it? Uh, I think I actually did watch it when I was in college at one point. Okay. So the wheelers are terrifying. The, the hallway full of severed heads is terrifying. Like the the rock king who's built into the rock. The whole thing that like there's a part that's basically a saw trap game where they're, they're, they have to choose correctly and, and then leave the room. And then as each character leaves the room, he, Dorothy's being told, well, they're dead. Well, they're oh yeah yeah, yeah 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 yeah. But the theory I have is this: the movie opens with her being taken to an insane asylum and given electroshock therapy. This is the unofficial Frank Oz sequel to yeah. Wizard of Oz. Not Frank Oz. It was uh, Robert Mur- Walter, well, Walter Murch. Yes, Walter Murch directed. Sorry, duh. Um, I, I thought of Frank Oz because of Oz. You know, I don't know why yeah. I did too. Yeah. When, for some reason, we're but, um, but yeah. So she's taken to an insane asylum and given electroconvulsive therapy. You know, electroshock in her. Yeah, head, because right? she can't stop having dreams about Oz. My theory is that the moment she goes into electric shock, everything else after that is her going through electroshock therapy and her mind trying to rationalize the pain and the the sheer shock of going through this therapy. Because immediately after that, oh, there's a fire and the uh, the the um, insane asylum starts burning down. So she escapes into Oz, where she you know she's with her chicken and whatever else it is. But everything after that is such an idealized version of a nightmare world where a, that a kid may have gone. So maybe the the Dorothy that was originally in Oz was actually in Oz or whatever else. And this Dorothy is just going through electroshock, and all of her memories of Oz have been perverted because. Everything after that point is just such a such a twisted, crumbling kingdom because her mind is fraying. And even at the very end, when she leaves Oz and she goes back to her her regular home, her aunt is all nice to her and everything's idealized and storybook. Not happening. It's all in her head. So in your theory of this, Dorothy Walter Murch made a horror movie about the I love it. No, I love this. Yeah. Is that she gets completely lobotomized to the point where she's stuck in an idealized version. Oz is saved at the end, but that's because she's escaped her own actual mind and she's living in some sort of a Dorothy's gone crazy. She's in a locked in state in in her own head. Amazing. (laughs) I I gotta find people that haven't seen Return Oz. Yeah, you gotta do you gotta do an episode. Now that you've been completely sorry, we also spoiled Return Oz. Yeah. For those who haven't seen it. Uh, but I will try to, uh, I, 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 I just realized that I'm like, 
for someone who's only seen like, the, big, the big MGM musical, they'll, they'll have no idea what the fuck they're getting into. Well, like, oh, that movie's great, though. I mean, I, I, you, you got to buy it from the Disney collection. Uh, there was a, there, it's out there. You can get it on Amazon through the marketplace. You can probably get it on eBay. But the only copy on DVD that exists, and it's a good copy. Um, can I have you, one on DVD. Oh, you got the okay. yeah, yeah. So there was a movie a month club that Disney ran in the early two thousands of DVDs. Yeah, and that's, and that's where, where those copies came from. There were never retail copies in stores. It was only that, and that's if you bought one, it's because you probably bought it through the marketplace or Amazon has a number of those. No, I got it in a store. I got it in a brick and mortar store, but I wonder where it was. I wonder if it was like in a used bin. I feel like it must have been. Yeah, it's weird. It's anyway, and it's the only movie that Walter Murch ever directed. I think. Yep. It's it's <laughs> Walter Murch. For those who don't know, is, yeah. is a renowned editor, legendary editor. Uh, so yeah, and uh, wrote an excellent book on editing. In the blink of an eye, yeah, yep. it's great. Any final thoughts as we circle back around to our childhoods and um, perversions of them? <laughs> well, some some stuff got is perverted. Uh, I love The Rocketeer, and I whether I watched it back then or watched it now, it's a movie that is going to live on to some extent because I think it's got that certain charm and and uh i don't know hope to it that a lot of films that live on have yeah like, it's very charming yeah yeah i'm looking forward to showing this to my to my kids i think they get a they get a kick out of it nice all right, all right. thanks for bringing the copy over not a problem man thank you let's all go to the lobby let's all go to the lobby Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Thanks for joining us for The Rocketeer. If you like the show, please subscribe to the podcast and spread the word about it. You can find me on Twitter, at Lon Jeremy, and go to Facebook for Black Hole Films. Leave a review there, or on Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen to this thing. And until next time, go watch something you've never seen before. Thanks. Let's all go to the lobby.